Welcome to The Committed Innovator, where experienced innovators and unsung heroes share their triumphs and trials with our host, Eric Roth, the global leader of McKinsey's innovation and growth practice. We'll uncover the real stories behind successful innovations and take you behind the scenes with the leaders developing innovative new technologies and business models to unlock long-term growth. Today, we are unbelievably grateful to welcome Arena Vital to our discussion. Arena is a longtime experienced innovator, having worked in many, many different corporate environments all over the world for the past 30 years. But today, she really spends her time working on boards in some of the most interesting and largest institutions in India, as well as working with the government to focus on issues related to urbanization and agriculture. Arena, welcome, and thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Eric. Yes, and in full transparency, we're sitting here in the northeast of the United States in about six to ten inches of snow, and Arena is off in India uh, looking at us, wondering what, uh, what, what possibly we're going to do with all that snow, given the, the difference in temperatures <laughs> where she and I are sitting today. Absolutely. Arena, let's jump into it. You've really seen the inside out of different kinds of companies, particularly in the developing world. Uh, and how they're trying to grow and the challenges they've had. But tell us a little bit about your background before we jump into that. Well, I've been unbelievably lucky in where I've had the opportunity to work. So I started my life working with uh, Nestle. Then I joined Vodafone in India, which was called Max Touch. And then I joined McKinsey. And of course, I worked across the world in the US, Europe, in Israel, in Pakistan, Indonesia, India, and across the emerging markets. And what was fascinating was in 1999, before BRICS as a concept was created, uh, a bunch of us decided that McKinsey did not understand emerging markets. And so we created this concept called How Half the World Shops, which basically was across Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and Mexico. And then for the next uh, 12 or 13 years, we had an absolute blast in the firm, working with colleagues in these countries to see what travels well from developed markets and what's unique about these countries, what makes growth happen and what's different about innovation. Uh, And that's pretty much the journey that I have continued. Um, When you do this in emerging markets, you realize how critical uh, structures are, governance structures, city structures, hence urbanization, even livelihoods, because demand is such an important factor. And you suddenly realize the whole Understanding the whole is as important as understanding categories. And that's what has led me to where I am today. And as you think about that journey, your journey, are there any like pivotal moments or, or highlights that really turned you uh, into one direction versus another in terms of how you view growth and innovation, things you saw, insights you discovered that shaped how you got to where you are today? One was a realization that Growth is a mindset issue. It's, a, it's about the state of mind. It's not about the state of market. And this is true in almost all countries. A lot of the growth conundrum is solved if you solve internal issues. The second thing one learned was margins, however, come from industry structure. And you can be the best company possible. You can have the most amazing mindset about growth. But if industry structure is off-kilter, you've then got to be very, very patient. And then I think the third thing one learned was that consumers have a life. 
they don't think about categories, they don't think about brands, they think about their lives. And winners, therefore, uh, are able to focus on continuously improving the intersection of where their products and their services meet the life of consumers without asking the consumers what they want, because consumers actually don't really know, right? And so the third thing one realized was it's not about looking at competition. It's not about listening and playing back to consumers what they wanted. But if you understand lives of consumers, then you're able to keep reimagining how you serve them successfully. So to my mind, if I were to disaggregate, if I were to synthesize, you know, three big lessons across various sectors and various countries, these would be the three that strike me the most. So, so let's dive into some of that a little bit. As you think about the growth mindset, what are some of the biggest differences between a developing nation, some of the world, or even India specifically, we can focus on that as well, and the developed world? Are there differences and, and, and are they pronounced? And, and what, how would you describe them? I think there are two or three big differences, and they're more about a stage of evolution of the country than because consumers or people are fundamentally different. I mean, every country will say we're unique. Actually, they're unique because of the point in time at which they are, not because they are fundamentally different. But here are the two, three things that one has seen. One is the depth of the market in a lot of emerging markets is very shallow. And you are in these markets for tomorrow, not not necessarily for today. So you get a bunch of early adopters, but then the market suddenly seems much smaller than you thought it is. So one of the things you see great growth companies do is they get granular about growth a lot early in the game. So if you ever want to win in India, you define the many Indias that exist. You think of India as Europe, not as an America. India, for example, has 30 states. And it's critical for you to treat one of them as Germany and the other one as France and the third one as Italy, not as Michigan versus Ohio versus New York, because these are very, very different markets. And you also are then able to decide where are you an attacker and where are you an incumbent. The second thing you realize about these markets is a lot of the developed markets were shaped by supply. Large retailers who aggregated assortments and standardized demand In these markets where retail itself is still evolving, where categories themselves are still evolving, the role of reinterpreting the category continuously is very, very critical. And being able to keep the need of the consumer in mind and not being wedded to your format is absolutely essential to win. So you find complex supply chains much early in the game in developing markets. And and is the growth mindset, as you said, as you think about the need for granularity, the need for an understanding of the structures and point of time, are Indian leaders more apt to adapt to that mindset? Well, the good news is it has nothing to do with country of origin of the company. I think it's to do with the kind of leadership you have. I think leaders who are paranoid about consistent growth, very quickly get granular. It doesn't matter whether they are from India or America or from South Africa, right? So I think, I think it's about being paranoid about quality of growth and consistency of growth that leads you very quickly to break up India into many Indias. And do you think that, that they are typically 
focused on more organic or more inorganic? And is there is there an important difference as one considers a country like India? I think if you're paranoid about growth, it's a bit more granular than organic and inorganic. I think it's about retaining who you have, going deeper with them. So it's about retention and higher share of wallet. It's about acquiring new customers. And it is about small, continuous, inorganic to get into adjacencies, to sometimes acquire talent, to sometimes acquire right product market fit. So it's a simultaneous game, I think, in juggling three balls, retention, going deep, acquisition, remaining relevant, and continuously small acquisitions. And, and you mentioned in your second point that industry structure was critical. You know, from an innovation lens, we often talk about business model innovation, uh, which, of course, has a lot to do with industry structure or creating a new industry structure. As you look at India and perhaps other developing markets, how, how important is the business model uh, in the equation of growth, especially as you think about the three lenses you just said in terms of acquiring and training uh, and, and deepening your, your understanding of a consumer? Uh, I suspect you know, some, some models are more, more adept at doing that in, in, in markets like India than others. I, I love that question because I think a lot of people don't pay as much importance to the margin model and the business model as they need to. While in these markets, one has to remember India is at $2,000 per capita, China is at $10,000 per capita. These are still emerging markets and therefore the ability to price is very limited. And now in a world which is increasingly risk, de-risking the margin uh, becomes even more critical. And the answer there actually, if you get the de-averaging of the market right, the answer actually lies in the business model. And one of the best things that I have learned from successful players in emerging markets is that they have actually perhaps taken the lead in disaggregating the business model and saying, hey, what do we need to do inside and what can actually be done outside? Because a lot of these countries are not about gross margin. A lot of these countries are about return on capital employed. And return on capital employed is best played if you get three parts of it right. You need to get your cost structure right because you have very little pricing power. You need to get the product mix and the product portfolio right because you will have price ladders which go from entry price point, it, sometimes it's everyday low price, right up to premium. And the same consumer will buy different SKUs depending on occasion. So you've got to you get your pricing mix right. But then you've got to get the where you play in the value chain absolutely right. And some of the fastest growing, most agile companies in emerging markets have been those who have almost disassembled the business model and said, hey, this is what I'm going to do internally. This is what I'm going to influence. And this piece, I'm going to find other people who have natural, who are natural owners or the better cost structures or very different expectations of return. And so one of the things you find in emerging markets is that the physical boundary of the company that you run is much broader than the legal boundary of the company that you own because you've got to influence that ecosystem much early in the game. Are ecosystems a more important element of success and growth in a developing market then, than perhaps companies in developed markets have appreciated? I don't think they're more important. I think influencing them and making sure that they scale up 
to your quality and to your cost structure requires more work. So one of the things you will find if you double click into a good grower in emerging markets, you will find that they will have commercial teams who are into vendor development and business development, which are two, three, four times the size of the equivalent teams that you see in developed countries. Because in developed countries, you have ecosystem players who have who are sympathetic with you in terms of culture, compliance, quality standards, cost structures. While sometimes in emerging markets, they have to be curated by you. So I don't think they are more or less important. I think your role in in making them grow is more specific and uh, more deliberate than they are in in the developed countries. And as you think about the different kinds of companies you work with, you mentioned you're on boards of large, large, well-known uh, entities, as well as some of the most exciting startups uh, in India. Do you, what, are the, what are the big differences there? I mean, we, we hear often about the big companies in India. I'm not sure we hear as much about the little ones, the growing uh, you know, future unicorns or current unicorns uh, that are in India. What, what, have, what have you seen in terms of uh, either similarities or differences across those two types of companies as you sit on their boards? Well, I think the first difference is an obvious one, right? The startups are born digital and the incumbents are learning how to become digital. And the startups are learning how to scale up. The incumbents are learning how to forget old myths and old ways of doing things and becoming more agile. So that's the first difference, that they're both coming to the same place, but from very, very different starting points. I think the other difference is that the startups have the luxury to be focused primarily on the consumer with no formats. You know, so if you have somebody working in finance, he's not wedded to a bank branch format. He thinks he's in the business of providing you credit. He's, he's not optimizing the bank branch. But if you look at the big bank, the big bank is saying, but what does this mean for my bank branch network? So I think the, the, the startups are, are comfortable with uh, reimagining category go-to-market uh, and the incumbents are having to do a delicate dance between repurposing what they have and uh, creating the formats of tomorrow and a lot of it is actually in the head more than in the market. It sounds similar to your third point from the beginning which says you know consumers live a life and companies that understand uh, lives of consumers are the ones that typically live with them and grow faster are the startups better at understanding life than the big incumbents when it comes to product services and and then and then um, really growing growing with them yes and no i think the startups usually start with one passion of one guy and he's usually solving for himself uh, and then very quickly they realize that they have to play multiple games right and so at that point in time the the startup who intuitively, the founder usually who intuitively had a problem to solve, sometimes does a good job of finding new problems to solve and sometimes struggles, right? So it's not, it's not a given that they get consumer inciting better than the incumbents do. That said, the incumbents might have the capability and what the good incumbents have to do is to keep aside category definition. The problem, I think, with a lot of incumbents is they get so, they, they manage, they, they're so busy managing the current brand, the current concept, the current portfolio, that to put that aside or to find another bunch of folks who are reinterpreting the category and being comfortable with 
you know, a very incumbent word of cannibalizing my own business, it requires huge amounts of courage. So it's not that the incumbents are not good at doing it. If anything, they have better tools to do it. They have better institutional memories to do it. But, you know, sometimes you don't embrace the future because you don't see yourself there or you see it hitting <laughs> the past. And that's where I think the some of the incumbents struggle. And the good incumbents are able to uh, find a thoughtful way around it. Arena, one of the things we do see is the need for boards in their hopes to get an organization to become more innovative and grow faster, to set the bar higher through a clearer or, or a more pronounced aspiration. Oftentimes we call it the green box, sort of the gap of growth that needs to be quantified and filled by an organization. In your experience, sitting on boards, do you find that you need to nudge management to actually raise their aspirations and make different kinds of choices in terms of their investments so that they are orienting themselves more towards growth and innovation? How do you encourage the proper growth mindset in the company? Uh, listen, first of all, as a board member, you, you hopefully have the humility to know that great CEOs do a terrific job in very, very tough situations, right? So at best, you can hold up the mirror and when the CEO and the team are ready, they will see what you want them to see. So it's about bringing constructive challenge and conversations into the room. I think the word is not nudge. I think it is inspire. And I think it's most helpful to really great CEOs who get so used to growing at a certain rate that they assume that's the natural rate of growth of the organization. When... When you're sitting on a board and you, you're looking at what amazing stuff you're, they're doing, you're looking at it and saying, hey, but, you know, it's like you've built a new muscle. Why are you not, why are you not accelerating? And the guy says, but I'm growing at 15%, right? And you're saying, no, but you're capable of growing fast. So I think what's helpful is to move this conversation from annual rate of growth to what should be your rightful share in the market, what do you and your team and your great company deserve? And and what do you therefore need to build a moat around? And that is a conversation which is much more around inspiration. You are capable of doing this, right? This is our market to to aim for. Once he can reimagine that, then most of them are able to, good CEOs are able to deliver it. So as you look across India in particular, or other emerging markets, uh, who are the inspiring analogies that you would point to in terms of companies that are really understanding growth and innovation and reframing categories? Oh, there are lots of them. I think if you look at fintech, we see a whole bunch of players who are realizing what a game China has played in finance, in the whole financial services. And we have a whole bunch of incumbents, as well as some attackers, but a whole bunch of incumbents who are in the middle of repurposing their business models. We're seeing this happen in the healthcare industry, where the whole thing is moving from a focus on formats like hospitals or diagnostics to patient centricity and saying, hey, what does it take to do a 24-7 multi-year relationship with a patient and to move from surgical you know, inputs and being relevant for surgeries to preventive, right? So thinking of owning a life from birth to death, 
and thinking through what would you need to do to be able to have the data of the consumer, to be able to have the trust of the patient, and then to have a clinical engagement with them uh, so that you actually reduce the amount of time they spend in the hospital, right? And it, it's in many ways, if you do a good job, you're going to shrink your current business. We see this in retail, where folks are realizing that the old formats, which was around availability, is now pretty much dead. And we need to move from pure availability to discovery in some ways to fulfillment and not fulfillment in terms of physical fulfillment, but anticipatory fulfillment and services and uh, be able to fine tune the talent of your team to make money not from selling products, but from serving them on the adjacent services. So a whole bunch of companies who are in the middle of reinvention. So Let's shift to the, the startups, the ventures you're working with. What are the, some of the most exciting things you're seeing in India in terms of new innovation and growth from these, from the sort of the new entrants? You know, what I find fascinating about them is because they are born digital and with data, they're all experimenting with amazing things. So for example, I was sitting with a team yesterday, which has created a predictive model after the first transaction to find out who is likely to be a, a good quality customer. One of the things we realized in that particular business was there was no point in chasing every customer. We wanted high quality customers. And so these guys have, I think they, we started with 65 variables and they've brought it down to 13 variables, which can now predict to 65% accuracy after for the first transaction on quality of customers. I find that fascinating. There's another one where we realized that India is a shallow market, even if you're digitally savvy. And so retention is incredibly critical. And then we realized that the single most important factor for retention in that particular business was the first transaction going green. And that team has identified 39 failure modes, only six of which the consumer sees, 33 of which are internal. And they're systematically now doing root cause analysis and finding solutions to go green. And they measure all of them. So what I like about the startups is it's not that they are more intelligent or less intelligent. It's that they are using technology and the intimacy that they have with, with the customer to be able to reduce inertia in, in the whole purchase cycle, to simplify the, uh, the decision-making for the customer, and more importantly, to be able to almost um, decide who they want to serve uh, and how do they want to serve them. So... You know, the incumbents can learn this too, but the startups are doing it more bravely today. And the biggest difference is because they don't just have transaction data. They have end-to-end -end consumer inside data. You know, incumbents have tons of data. And as they build the data lake, they realize that the quality of the data, A, it has to, you know, is suspect. But more importantly, 90, 95% of the data that they've captured is transaction data because the other parts of their, eco, of their organizations, which was capturing relationship data or consumer data actually has not codified it. But some of the, uh, the attackers or the new guys have captured much more than transaction data. And that's what gives them an edge to be able to follow the customer decision journey and, and fine tune some of these things. It's funny, as you, as you describe that, it, it strikes me how often we see that large incumbents the data is really financial orientation, right? It's how to run the company and make sure that everything yeah. adds up. 
as opposed to the customer centricity, which is what you're describing, which all these companies are trying to achieve, but don't actually codify the information they even have. So it's very difficult to put it all together. But what, what's fascinating is, 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 as you say, these startups seem to start from a point of customer back or customer centricity. Is that by accident or by intention? I I think it's it's a bit of both. I think they capture a lot more data because of the way they engage with the with the customer. The fact that it's not just about selling to them; it's also about the whole process of owning them from the point the decision has made to the transaction happening. And because they want repeat. By the way, I actually believe the incumbents have as much right to win this game as the startups do, right? Because they have crazy institutional and category insight, which perhaps they have not leveraged. It might not be in the form of data. So if you look at you know some of the large retailers who are now coming back in a big way in the developed markets, some of the insights they have, for example, on cross-sell and upsell, is so much more thoughtful than what the startups do because they intuitively know for literally decades how consumers have interacted with them. But incumbents are so siloed that the data insights that they have does not naturally flow into either the value proposition creation or into the way the consumer is engaged. Because large incumbents over time, because they are large, have got organized for efficiency. They are functional, right? And they do do a fantastic job. And so if we can bring customer centricity back into incumbents, you will find that the data exists. It's just that it's sitting in different parts. And we often don't listen to the front end, which actually has a huge amount of insight. So I think a lot of this is about, you know, almost um, being able to sweep up data that's lying in various parts of the large incumbents and do pattern recognition and then put it back out there. So if these large companies could increase the speed within which they aggregate, synthesize, and act on information, would that give them a real advantage, particularly in, 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 in Indian context and other developing markets? Yes, of course. And I think the real issue is what would it take for them to synthesize and increase the speed of learning, right? And a lot of it stems from the fact that information in many incumbents is power, And why would I share information and what's in it for me? And so I think the two lessons that I've learned is, one, this needs to be a critical part of strategic growth and the sponsorship has to come right from the top. Uh, And second, this needs what the startups would call agile teams, which is you need to have reason for different functions or different people to bring their insights, their data, their information together And usually it happens if you almost structure this as special projects for growth or special initiatives, new initiatives, create sponsors. And the moment you do that and folks realize two things. One, growth has actually accelerated. And by the way, we did it ourselves and we enjoyed this way of working. You suddenly will find in a couple of uh, generations of this kind of working, you suddenly find the attitude to sharing information changes in large incumbents. And then elephants do dance. The real thing that I have learned is where is the enemy? Is the enemy outside or is the enemy inside? The moment you have external orientation, right? The moment you're looking at reimagining the category and share, the moment you have an enemy outside to fight, 
the internal enemies become friends, right? And in large organizations, especially successful large organizations, I was having a conversation the other day with 50 guys representing one of the most successful companies in India. And we were talking about paranoia of growth. And one of the, the, the vice chairman said something so interesting. He said, but we don't have a burning platform, right? So sometimes it helps if you have an enemy. And some of the best CEOs I know, one of the best CEOs I know constantly creeps creating an enemy outside because then the hordes inside are collaborating. The more external orientation you have, the more you're focused on customers, the easier it is for internal walls to to be broken. And not to overly focus on today's context, but what you're saying would, would tie nicely to the reality of what's happened with innovation in the COVID pandemic times. The external yeah. enemy has become a pandemic and the ability for organizations to rapidly pivot and change their business models and drive new forms of innovation in order to survive uh, or, or in order to help others survive has been probably one of the, 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 the positive elements of 2020. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And in India, do you find that given the diversity of the country, that scaling things up is more difficult than in other markets? And, you know, as you think about the, the consumer uh, and perhaps the differences in consumers, depending on where they live and what might influence uh, life in those in those areas, that startups are better at spotting those differences and taking advantage of them, given what you just described? No, I, I don't think these startups do a better job of scaling up because the this, see, if you think about how you how you scale up in, in India or China, you actually cluster. You cluster markets, right? And just because markets are contiguous geographically doesn't mean that they are the same. So the real trick in this is to break up the country into four or five or six clusters based on, usually, even in China today, income is still the single most important driver of category. So usually in India, it's... China, it's, yeah, it's income, 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 then it is access, then it is, you know, category, category uh, you know, drivers. In China, it might be one income, and then it might be other factors. But then you cluster them, because they, you're, there's no way you're going to serve 30 Indias. You serve three or four Indias at best, right? And so that kind of understanding, I think inc- the successful incumbents have intuitively, because they have done this Lego game with India, already once, right? And now they're layering what used to be a geographic Lego game. The startups, just given where they are, will still start with let's win in the top 10 cities. And don't forget, the top 10 cities in India is 58 million people. So they've got a long way to go before they go to the next 100 million. So a lot of startups are 10 city focused. A lot of the incumbents can go, if they get the act right, in by doing proof of concept in one or two cities, can then... I think, scale up much faster because they have the institutional knowledge of clustering, which the startups don't. You're, you're bringing back fond memories of, of all of my years living in China, where I used to have to remind people that the city of Shanghai was larger than many of the markets in other countries. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so as, as you think about getting, getting the you know, growth in India right, um, or, or other emerging markets, as you, I know you've spent so much time in many of them. What are the other critical lessons? As a leader, how do you make sure your organization is tuned properly to, to really 
understand those dynamics and then capitalize on them? I think there are two characteristics of the market that's worth keeping in mind in addition to de-averaging and reimagining the business model. And then I think a lot of it is around how you run the company. The two other things, I think one is around the importance of what I call the war on waste. Cost is a competitive advantage in emerging markets because there is such little pricing power, right? And you almost have to build a business model which assumes a real price-cost squeeze of 1% to 2% year on year. And somebody taught me this equation once, one of my clients, who said that the margin is given by the head office, the price is given by the local competitor. You actually have only the cost to play, right? So C is equal to price minus margin. That's the game you play. You don't play the game which says cost plus margin is is equal to price. And the other thing is risk. You've got to look at risk-adjusted returns in emerging markets because every year something goes wrong. I mean, that's that's the whole nature of the game. And you can't cry and say, oh, this thing went off. You just have a plan B built into your margin structure, into your business model. So those are the two characteristics that you keep in mind. But I think... And I don't know whether it's different, but because a lot of organizations are still young in these countries, and even if you look at multinationals, because a lot of them uh, seek to create emerging market models, which are slightly different from the developed markets, I think the whole, the two things that become really critical is clarity on source of growth. You've got to be very, very sharp about where the next $100 million are coming from, and make choices because you could easily fragment yourself chasing many, many small rabbits in China and India. That doesn't help. So source of growth. And the second thing is, while everybody does a great job of vertical cascading and alignment, horizontal collaboration is very critical. Because remember, the functions are critical because they're all outward facing, you know, your supply chain guy is working with a fragmented vendor base, your sourcing guy is working with a fragmented base, your finance guy is looking at risks in a different kind. So the functions have a tougher job in many cases, in many, many uh, cases. But the horizontal collaboration amongst these leaders is actually as critical in these markets as the vertical cascading of, of targets is. And therefore, being thoughtful about metrics, you know, making sure you have three plus one, three metrics for this year, one metric for health of the company, incredibly critical. Shared metrics across functions very, very critical. And these things, I think, in emerging markets require a lot more focus because a lot of companies are still young in their, in their DNA. You've mentioned metrics a few times. What, what are some of your favorite go-to metrics as you think about you know, growth and innovation, particularly in developing markets, if, if you have some? I think one metric for me is when do you declare a customer has been acquired? Right? So you don't target a guy for acquisition once with a CAC. Right? It's actually about when you become part of his monthly basket or when you become part of his ritual. Right? So defining acquisition, not as the first transaction, but as retention transaction, to me is very critical. The other one is the quality of the customer that you acquire. It's very easy in emerging markets which have large populations to always grow top line. Right? The real issue is retention. And so the quality of customers, how do you know which is a good customer and how do you over time become more relevant to the good customer is incredibly critical. I know of great growers who have let go of customers who, you, who they thought were not fit for their product, product market offering and were comfortable with a smaller top line but a stronger and more predictable bottom line. 
than anything else. And then the third one for me is return on capital employed. This, these countries are businesses about cash. It's very easy to have vanity metrics in this country. But the only thing that matters in these countries because of high risk is return on capital employed, not gross margin, not gross margin. These are rosy businesses. And so keeping in mind return on capital employed is very, very critical. Do most CEOs understand that these are rosy businesses and, and you got to watch the CapEx, not the OpEx line? Or is that confusing to folks? Because, you know, we, there's so many discussions on OpEx and particularly in growth. <laughs> and, you know, you get front end of the funnel stuff that is uh, all about um, experimentation. But then, you know, at some point you got to invest in capital perhaps to make it actually produce things and, and, and get and get distribution and other things. And is that is that well understood in, in <laughs> India? Because it's not so well understood elsewhere. No, I think I think it's well understood amongst the good leaders. But I must tell you a really funny story. We were serving an amazing company uh, from the U.S. They were setting up a business in India, and they had a $300 million capex. And we did the math and said, in 100 years, you're not going to get returns on this. And they said, but these are our quality standards, right? We're used to FDA standards. And I remember meeting a whole bunch of burly, big, white men who laughed at me and said, when was the last time you built a factory? for this quality of product, right? And I said, no, you're, we've convinced your global CEO we need a plant at $20 million, which will be FDA approved, $300 million to $20 million. We ended up, and they finally built a plant for $54 million. FDA approved, right? So, and and they, it was the same bunch of guys. And they did a fantastic job. They're making money hand over fist. If they had invested $300 million, they were dead in the water, the day the plant would have been inaugurated. So I think a, a whole bunch of people who've, who've got their fingers burnt and have <laughs> written down values, <laughs> which are obscene, have learned this. But a lot of the good managers have got it. I mean, these countries are rule of thumb. If something costs you $100 in the US, in China and India, it shouldn't cost you more than 40 45 You know, if your cost to serve is X in the US, in these markets, it shouldn't be more than 50% of, of that. So... These are rule of thumb, the rules of thumb that you realize over time. And do you think those rules of thumb have, have become rules of management? Because, you know, as you say, the differential between what good is for an, a, a, com a company coming from a, the developed world, like the U.S. or Europe, relative to what good looks like for a company in a China, in an India, very, very different. And a lot of innovation, uh, and I remember years ago we used to talk about innovation through incremental change in, in China, where they're so fast and they're willing to put something out and, and make it better over time. And I think India was largely the, the same idea. And back then, companies did not understand what you just described. You know, one of the funny things that I've learned is adults don't learn by listening. They learn by doing, right? So I think anybody who's got burnt has understood this. I think also a lot of it depends on the sagacity of the global CEO and the sponsorship uh, how close is an emerging market to the global CEO? If it is close, then I think they get it earlier because they get pained a lot earlier. But if it is layered, then, then you really struggle. But a lot of multinationals who grow very well in these markets have understood this, that, there is, that these are truly markets because of income, because of income uh, and the demand structure, these are truly markets which are made for good, better, best. And they keep evolving. The good, better, best keeps moving upwards. But if you come with too much of best or you come with last season's best, the consumer kicks you out. 
you can't even fool them, right? Uh, the consumer is smart. And especially the top-end consumer is a global consumer. So you've got to stay, you have to iterate. These markets are about iteration and just staying slightly above the income. But these are not about uh, gold plating. Now, you do a lot of work with the government on urban issues and agriculture. Does the government in India also try to use innovation uh, and, and, and learning and iteration in the way it tackles some of these issues? And, and uh, we do get a lot of questions from governments and public institutions around the world uh, trying to use innovation more, more pronoun- in a more pronounced way to, to try to drive change. There are lots of things that our government does foolishly, but some of the most stunning innovation I have seen has been, in, has been done by some of our really good politicians and bureaucrats. So let me just give you two examples. One is I think there are a whole bunch of public assets being built in India using technology, which are going to truly prevent capture by large corporates in, on the data side. So for example, the whole identity system, which is digitally enabled, or even in finance, the whole UPI platform, which is an open architecture, you can plug and play all your new age apps, but the platform is a common platform that is a public platform. Incredible. But the other thing which I find fascinating is some of the bureaucrats have done such an amazing job on last mile uh, with where there's inequality. So I'll give you an example. We have a whole bunch of poor in India who get food from the government through the public distribution system. And there were always there was always noise saying anywhere between 30 and 70% of this is siphoned off. And in parts of India now, this is fully digitized. You know, I went to a village and there was a small store which didn't even have a roof run by an illiterate guy. He was fully digitized. And he gets, he gets the grain from the government and the amount of grain he gets is based on a, a digital ID card that he carries. The weighing machine has a cute American accent and the woman will say 500 grams of sugar because so many people are illiterate. So the weighing is not done visually. It's done, you know, orally. The payment, the person brings a card which has the money that's transferred from the government digitally and pays for this food digitally. So it's all cashless, all digital and totally enabled by technology. And 50, 60% of the beneficiaries are illiterate, and the whole system is technology-enabled. Some of the biggest use of technology and innovation is by the state governments and the governments in India, just because we are so late to governance and because technology allows you to do this at scale. And when you have 1.3, 1.4 billion people, uh, this kind of helps. So I'm quite astonished. People talk about Estonia. I think Estonia is awesome, 1.1 million people. Um, Some of the most interesting work in technology and innovation is happening in India too. Are there a lot of lessons to then be learned from India and particularly in the public sector around, I mean, because I, I, you know, I think about the example you just made and I'm, I'm sitting here in the U.S. thinking, gee, where can I find an analogy that would be similar uh, at the scale that you just described? And I, I'm, I can't think of one at the moment. I'll be probably puzzling on that all day. But um, are there some real lessons to learn that others could use as analogies and inspiration for perhaps changing the way uh, governments serve uh, and interact with with the population? Yeah, there is a lot. I mean, our bureaucrats have created a group on Telegram and they keep exchanging messages with each other. So there's a lot of learning inside. Don't get me wrong, there's lots to do. I think we are 
in day one on our governance and our last mile getting the government peace right. But what I find fascinating is that our bureaucrats, which are the heart of um, building out the government, start with thinking of digital and technology, right? I mean, it's it's gone ingrained, saying, hey, if you want to solve this, you have to start with that platform. And so that, to me, is where the hope is. We get it right, I would say, 20% of the time. We still screw up 80% of the time. But uh, yes, there are a lot of lessons to be learned in education, in, in um, water management, in food for poor, in the equivalent of digital money being sent to pensioners and to old people. A lot of this is now technology enabled. And yes, a lot of lessons to be learned, first by Indians themselves, and then of course by the world. Thanks for listening. You can find a transcript of this conversation at mckinsey.com slash committed innovator. We look forward to having you join us again soon for the next episode of The Committed Innovator.